This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about donor sperm and parenthood, a crisis in the making. With the rise of reproductive and genetic technologies, the world has increased the number of options people have when it comes to having children. Technology has enhanced the power of choice. What technology has not done is enable culture to live with the consequences. This last point is perhaps most acute in the area of the use of donor sperm. Let me explain. First of all, there is the problem of using the same donor sperm for multiple conceptions. Further, in using the same donor sperm in this manner, the donor is always anonymous and the children conceived using that sperm do not know who their father is. Hence, our culture now faces the sociological phenomenon known as half-siblings, in this case referring to multiple children conceived using the same donor sperm. Using a web-based registry, it is now possible to track children conceived using the same donor sperm. One woman living in a lesbian relationship and who had a child seven years ago using donor sperm has tracked the number of half-siblings related to her son. That number is now a staggering 150 half-siblings related to her son. Half-sibling groups are now forming, and they chat online, interact on Facebook, and even get together in large groups to get to know one another. But there are growing concerns about using the same donor sperm to father so many children. Medical specialists are concerned about the potential of spreading the genes of rare diseases more widely through the population. In recent years, sperm with a host of serious diseases and disorders has been sold to hundreds of women, according to medical journals and other published reports. Further, it is quite conceivable that the children of the same father, via donor sperm, could fall in love and get married. Such a union, unbeknownst to the man and woman, could actually be an incestuous union with all the resulting biological consequences for the children of such a union. For these reasons, many are calling for more intense scrutiny and regulation of the fertility clinics that promote the use of donor sperm. Incidentally, among industrialized nations on Earth, the United States does not have any regulation of this industry for the most part. This is a very lucrative business. And in the United States, there are really more regulatory rules for buying a used car than buying donor sperm. Should there be greater insistence on accurate information provided to the mother and eventually to the children conceived using the same sperm? Should there be an imposed limit on the number of children that can be conceived using the same donor sperm? For the most part, as I said, this is an unregulated industry, and we are beginning to see the unintended consequences of this reproductive option. The stunning reality is that no one knows 
how many children are conceived each year in the United States using donor sperm? Most estimates range from between 30 to 60,000 children each year, but no one really knows. Mothers of donor children are asked to report the birth of their donor child, but only between 20 and 40 percent do so each year. In the 1980s, the United Kingdom commissioned a report to analyze and give counsel on all issues dealing with the use of donor sperm. Called the Warnock Report, the report proposed regulation of human sperm and embryos use and sale and proposed strict limits on the number of children a donor could father, their suggestion 10 per donor. The UK adopted many of the suggestions from the Warnock Report. So, with the growing reality that fertility clinics are, in effect, permitting hundreds of children to be fathered by the same donor sperm, and that unintended incest is a real possibility, regulation of this industry seems wise and necessary. There's one further unintended consequence of the use of the same donor sperm to father so many children. When children realize that they may have dozens or perhaps even a hundred half-siblings, many will want to make connections with their half-brothers and sisters. Are they then a family? What are the psychological and emotional consequences for such children? We have never faced anything like this in the history of humanity. We are truly in uncharted waters as a civilization. And it certainly illustrates the unintended consequences of empowering human beings to take almost complete control of reproduction. Is such manipulation of the reproductive process a positive development? My intuition tells me this is not necessarily a positive advance for the human race. Let me deal with a second corollary to this use of donor sperm. To deal with the huge costs of using donor sperm at a fertility clinic, it's often $2,000 or more per donor sperm injection, couples and single individuals are using free sperm donor search engines on the Internet to contact men who are willing to give their sperm free to prospective mothers. In the United States, for example, a college student could make $12,000 per year from American sperm banks for twice weekly anonymous sperm donations. Typically, this option of using free sperm permits careful vetting by the mother, including using questionnaires, doing interviews, reference checks, and even STD checks. But this market for free sperm raises other important questions. What if the donor sues for custody once a child is conceived and born? What if that donor lies about STD, or other medical conditions he might have? What is the real motive of someone who donates sperm freely? Only altruism? This we know. There is now a growing population of gay, straight, single, and married people using this option of free donor sperm. These non-clinic options are now available, and they include six Yahoo groups, three Google sites, and about a dozen fee-based websites dedicated to providing free or inexpensive donor sperm. Most of them are in the UK, Canada, or Australia, and have developed because these nations tightly regulate donor sperm. 
In the United States, the Food and Drug Administration is only now beginning to express interest in overseeing and regulating this growing practice. But our culture no longer has an ethical foundation for evaluating these practices. For example, is it ethically valid to permit a widespread industry by means of fertility clinics and these free options, which I just mentioned, where sperm are donated by men who must use masturbation, often accompanied by pornography, to maximize the sexual experience? Is it ethically valid to permit widespread use of artificial insemination using donor sperm for women who desire children? Is it ethically valid for single mothers to use this process? Is it ethically valid for lesbian couples to use this process? Is it ethically valid for married couples to use this process? As a culture, we have never had this ethical discussion. Instead, our culture has gone full speed ahead into the ethical morass of reproductive and genetic technologies. In this area of technology, there is no ethical compass guiding our civilization. Instead, we have bought the pragmatic approach that if we can do something, we must do that. We are now facing the consequences. Ethical questions and ethical thinking are now catching up with this technology. And it may be too late to frame the ethical guidelines to prevent further tragedy and destructive consequences. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to do something historical and think with you about the tragedy of Karl Marx. One of the most important thinkers of the modern era was Karl Marx, one of the key founders of ideological socialism and communism. His Communist Manifesto, and his multi-volume work, Das Kapital, influenced the formation of the USSR, the People's Republic of China, Cuba, North Korea, and many other smaller experiments. Best example for me is the socialist Western European countries that we see today. All of them are committed to constructing a socialist or communist utopia. Except perhaps in American universities, there are few remaining advocates of ideological communism. It is arguably one of the greatest failures of human history. Recently, I have been reading several books and essays on Karl Marx and his ideas. In this perspective, I would like to investigate the character and temperament of communism's primary ideologue. Karl Marx was born in 1818 in Prussia, descending from a distinguished line of Jewish scholars. His father was an attorney, and when a Prussian decree prohibited Jews from serving in such positions, Marx's father converted to Lutheranism. Marx was therefore baptized as a Lutheran. He was baptized in 1824. Karl Marx went on to earn a doctorate in philosophy and then got involved in the revolutionary politics of Europe. Although he had stints at journalism as a reporter, he spent most of his adult life studying in the British Museum in London. Two passions defined his life. His wife Jenny, whom he married in 1824, and the destruction of the world. 
The theme of a coming apocalyptic conflict occupied his thinking throughout his life. He envisioned the end of history when the proletariat would rise up and destroy the capitalist world. He wrote of human destiny. History is the judge, the executioners, the proletariat. He loathed religion. He wrote, religion is the opiate of the people. He went on, religion is only the illusionary sun around which man revolves until he begins to revolve around himself. A close acquaintance of Karl Marx once observed that Marx does not believe in God, but he believes much in himself and makes everyone serve himself. His heart is not full of love, but of bitterness, and he has little sympathy for the human race. His lifestyle, the lifestyle of Karl Marx, was abhorrent. He smoked and drank heavily. He seldom bathed or washed. He was totally incompetent at handling money. He never seriously tried to get a job, but lived off loans from family and friends and for the most part were never repaid. Without his patron, Friedrich Engels, Marx and his family would have starved. Quite often, the family's silver service was in the pawn shop, as were their clothes. At one point in their life, only Marx had enough clothing to leave the house, and he was down to his last pair of pants. His family life was a complete tragedy. One of his daughters died of an opium overdose, and another participated in a suicide pact. When Franziska, who was one years old, died, the family lacked the money to even buy a coffin. His son Edgar got gastroenteritis due to the squalid conditions of the home and died in 1855. The Marx family employed a servant. Her name was Helen DeMuth from 1845 to 1890. They called her Lincoln, a German word. She never received a cent of wages from Karl Marx. She only got room and board. In fact, Helen DeMuth was Karl Marx's mistress, to whom she fathered a son. The son's name was Freddie. Freddie was permitted to visit his mother, but only by coming in the back door. Marx only met his illegitimate son once. When Jenny discovered Marx's infidelity, she was devastated, and she would write how utterly devastating it was to know that her husband was unfaithful to her. One can only reach one conclusion about Karl Marx. He was a man of immense selfishness and self-indulgence. He never personally knew any working-class members, and the one he had as his family servant, he did not pay her and he used her as his mistress. Now, why is all of this important? Well, Karl Marx gave birth to one of the great revolutionary movements of modern history. But as its ideological founder, his life was filled with gross inconsistencies and a failure to live the very tenet he so vigorously triumphed and defended. He was hardly a model of virtue, hardly a worthy example of the utopia he envisioned. What did this morally bankrupt man produce? Well, among other things, his utopian ideals gave genesis to a totalitarian regime 
in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, USSR. And when Stalin was garnering his power and during his purges, Robert Conquest estimates over 20 million people were killed. Marx's ideas also fostered the regime of Mao Zedong, who in 1949 created the People's Republic of China. As he rose to power and consolidated his hold, the estimate is he killed over 60 million people. The Bible champions the moral and ethical character of leaders. One thinks of Joseph, Daniel, and of course Jesus, and clearly infers that a nation or a church or an institution is only as virtuous as its leader. Karl Marx failed on all counts and contributed in no small way to the butchery of the 20th century. There is a connection in my judgment, and I think I see this clearly in the Bible, between one's personal character and one's legacy. One would never use the term virtue to describe the life of Karl Marx. And in my view, one would never use success to describe the legacy of Karl Marx either. Evil is the only fitting term to describe both Karl Marx's character and his legacy. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the legacy of Steve Jobs, one of the founders of the Apple brand and product line that's called Apple. Steve Jobs, as you no doubt know, died recently as a result of his struggle with pancreatic and liver cancer. My understanding is that his death certificate showed respiratory failure, but it was all related to the tragedy of his cancer. The contribution of Steve Jobs to our technological society was truly revolutionary. In 2011, one cannot imagine the world without the iPhone, the iPod, and the iPad. Each completely remade the technology available to each human being. Jobs' innovations made it possible to individualize everything, music, entertainment, information access, TV, and even how we communicate. Steve Jobs was truly and arguably a technological revolutionary. But let me make several observations about his legacy. Recently, Andy Crouch, a man I respect and have used a number of his books, recently observed, quite insightfully, I believe, that Steve Jobs turned Eve's apple, think Genesis 3, Eve's apple, the symbol of fallen humanity, with a bite out of the apple so evident, into a religious icon of true believers in technology, perhaps intentionally, the Apple icon sought to reverse the fall and communicate powerfully that technology was the only hope for the future. It is our new savior. Second, Steve Jobs championed the gospel of a secular age, an age which sees redemption and progress as an individual thing, fostered by facilitating a smorgasbord of choices that face each human. What is important 
is that you choose, not what you choose. Jobs sought to enhance the world of sovereign personal choice through technology. He therefore provided the tools to do so. Jobs' world and vision were not based on revelation or on dogma. It was a free-floating individualism enhanced by superior technology. Andy Crouch shares that Steve Jobs was a convert to Zen Buddhism and was convinced as anyone could be that this life is all there is. He hoped to put a ding in the universe by his own genius and vision in this life alone. Who can deny that he did? Jobs' view of progress was, of course, technological in its orientation. That's obvious. But for him, the world would get better only through technology. His religion of hope was rooted in technological solutions that are remarkably personal, elegantly so due to technology. For Steve Jobs, a meaningful life and genuine hope were only to be found in self-actualizing its meaning and purpose through technology. The legacy of Steve Jobs is without question truly awesome. Few have left this world with such tangible contributions to human development and technology. Indeed, the world will continue to be marked by the ubiquitous Apple icon. But his legacy and his life beg this question. Is technology, at least the secular gospel jobs represented through technology, sufficient to overcome the true need of the human race, that vacuum left in the vital center of every human by sin? As a Christian, I can only answer that no, this is not enough. Steve Jobs died. And the Bible helps us understand why each one of us will also die. But the true gospel is the one Jesus Christ preached. Salvation is not technological, but cosmic in its proportions and individual in its application. Each human being has an opportunity to fill that vacuum through Jesus Christ. My hope is that Steve Jobs did that before he drew his last breath. He changed the world and mine through the Apple products I have bought. But his technological gospel is not sufficient for the human race to provide true hope in a hopeless world. May we see Steve Jobs and the technology he produced as a good gift from God an example of God's common grace to humanity. But may we not see Steve Jobs as a promoter of a gospel that solves the core problem of humanity. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And I repeat, my prayer is that before he drew his last breath, Steve Jobs came to terms with the claims of Jesus Christ. That is what brings true hope to hopeless humanity, not technology. May we appreciate the common grace gift of technology from God, but may we embrace Jesus as the real solution to humanity's problems. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.